We've been making our way through the Gospel of John for about a year now. Um, we've made our way to a very interesting story that is similar to the one that recounts Jesus' conversation with a man in chapter 3. We're in chapter 4 of John this morning. If you have your Bibles, I ask you to go there. We're going to be in verses 1 through 14. I will read through verses 1 through 26, kind of set the context, set the stage. We're going to read through the whole story today, but it's going to take at least two weeks to get through. I think it'll just take two for me to preach through this story. It's the story of Jesus speaking with the woman at the well. This, like the chapter preceding it, records the conversation between Jesus and another person who he's sharing gospel truths with. In fact, John, in particular, shares a lot of individual conversations that Jesus has with people. And one of the themes that we're going to see throughout John, and I brought up repeatedly in the months preceding this, is that John especially points us to the Jewish rejection of their Messiah. Here we're going to see Jesus speaking to a Gentile woman, and we're going to learn from that interaction. I'm going to read through those verses, and we're only going to cover verses 1 through 14 today. Uh, Next week, I suspect that we'll actually kind of recap a few of the verses that I've moved swiftly through today. My hope would be to wrap up this morning with four points of application. I hope would be a help for you. Let's read through the text, pray, and then dive in. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, 
Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Let's pray. Father, this morning I know that there are so many things that might distract a person from hearing this message. I suspect that there may have been plenty of things in this woman's mind that could have distracted her from hearing what Jesus had to say. We're going to see some of those distractions, I think. Father, I'm going to ask that you overcome those distractions just as Jesus did with this woman here, whatever obstacles there might be. Lord, work in our hearts, help us to hear truth preserved in your word. Help me to proclaim it with clarity in a way that is helpful and true. God, help us to love you, love your word, love one another more because of our time in this Holy Bible this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's go back to the beginning of that chapter. This is the setup Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. We'll pause right there. I know that's mid-sentence. Those first two verses give us a bit of the setup. This reminds us that just a few verses earlier, the chapter preceding this one, there had been an exchange between John the Baptist and his disciples because they were observing people leaving from their camp, so to speak, and going towards Jesus' camp and being baptized by his disciples. Apparently, the Pharisees had gotten wind of this. And Jesus heard that the Pharisees had gotten wind of this. So it sounds like there's a concern about the Pharisees' increasing hostility toward Jesus and his ministry. And since it was not yet his time to suffer and die, he moved on. text here says that he was preparing to leave. But there's an important parenthetical that John, the author of this gospel, drops in here for us. And I don't think it's insignificant. I actually think it's quite important that it be dropped in here. While it is not the point of this chapter, while it is not the point of this entire story, it is a helpful guardrail to a wrong way of thinking. Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Baptism is, of course, an important part of the Christian life. It's critical. The Bible, the New Testament, knows nothing of an unbaptized believer. We can't find the name of a single person in the New Testament that we know to not be baptized. There are commands to baptize, And there are commands to be baptized. And many accounts of people being baptized. Dozens and dozens of accounts of this. In fact, sometimes we see individual people baptizing just one-on-one. Sometimes we see groups of 10 or 12. Other times we see thousands in a mass baptism service. 
And all of these baptisms take place at the beginning of one's faith, toward the origin point of their salvation. In other words, baptism is not in the Bible one of those things that the special holy Christians do once they've attained some years of wisdom, some years of experience, some ongoing sanctification, 7, 8, 10, 20 years later, I think I'm finally ready for baptism. No, the way the New Testament talks about this, this is part of the entrance into the Christian life. On the rare occasion, we, we meet a believer in the Bible who's not yet baptized that is immediately corrected. That's usually the purpose of that passage. Well, you're not baptized? Let's go. If you've not been baptized, you should be. That's the application point of the importance of baptism. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, repented of your sins, turned in faith to him, and you're not baptized, you should join the family. You should get baptized as Christ was baptized, as the disciples were baptized, as they baptized. But the ritual of baptism, although an ordinance declared by Christ, it is not the center of Jesus' ministry. In fact, after this point, we don't again hear of any baptisms by Jesus and by his disciples. From this point forward, it is the proclamation of the word. That's all we get over and over and over and over and over again. Baptism is not the reason Christ came. It is not a prerequisite for salvation. That's why the Apostle Paul, the greatest evangelist in the Bible, probably of all times after Christ, said this in 1 Corinthians 1.17, For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Although baptism is very significant in the Christian life, very important, it is not the center of Jesus' ministry. He himself didn't even perform any baptisms. Let us not put too much stock in who baptizes us or even in the event by itself, but more what it means. I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The text continues... Because he's learned about these Pharisees, their knowledge of his ministry, what does Jesus do? Well, it says in verses 3 through 4, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So if you were to look at a map, some of you have the maps in the back of your Bible right now, some might picture Israel. If you can't, here's what it looks like. uh, We have Judea is the southern region. Almost the northernmost point of that region of, of, the, of, of Israel as a nation is the city of Jerusalem. It's like at the very northern point of Judea. A lot of wilderness there. And it runs pr- pretty much from the uh, Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River on, on the east and Dead Sea. And then in the north, we have the region of Galilee. That's where Jesus was raised. He was, remember, he was raised in Nazareth up there. Uh, most of his disciples came from the region of Galilee. They were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, uh, several of them. And that was the center of most of his ministry. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, these kinds of cities. And if you wanted to get from the region in the south to the region in the north, very obviously you could just draw a straight line, and there were certainly roads that would take you from south to north and back, from Jerusalem up to Galilee. But they would have to pass through another region that your Bible maps probably have labeled as Samaria. This was the straightest way through Samaria, from Judea to Galilee, but it was not 
the usual way for the Jews. Jews did occasionally do that. Josephus records Jews did make their straightest path that way. But usually, Jews would avoid going through Samaria. Instead, from Jerusalem, from Judea, they would cross over the Jordan River, take the Trans-Jordan Highway up through Perea, and then cross the river a second time to get into Galilee, all because they wanted to avoid any interaction with the Samaritans. Samaria was home of the Samaritans. This is a people who had had a long and quarrelsome history with the Jews, and it will be very helpful for us to understand a bit of that history to really get the significance of this conversation Jesus is about to have. There had been a long-standing feud between the Jews and these Samaritans, which had begun centuries before Jesus' day. The first significant event in that story happened after the death of King Solomon. That's David's son. King Solomon was king over the United United, um, Tribes altogether. He was the last king to rule over all 12 of the tribes together. At the conclusion of his reign, his son Rehoboam caused a split between north and south, Civil War style for Americans, you think of it like that, where literally there was a split down the middle of the nation, two tribes stayed in the south, ten went to the north, and they were from that point forward forever divided. To this very day, Israel, nationally, ethnic Israel, has never again united back into a single nation, single nation. Not, not even to this day. Those in the north took on the name Israel. That became the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. Those in the south took on the name of Judah. It became the kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom, of course, had Jerusalem as its capital. The northern kingdom took as its capital... Samaria, the city of Samaria. And that's where that name comes from. In fact, that region would become identified by the name of its capital, Samaria. This woman was a Samaritan woman. Now, the most significant breach that takes place even after this time took place in 722 B.C. And this is when the Assyrian army invades the northern kingdom and decimates each of the major cities, including Samaria, its capital. And after this decimation, Assyria deports scores of Jews, the great majority of Jews from this area, and imports a whole bunch of pagans from all over the Assyrian Empire. And they did this intentionally. They did this so that there would now be a mixed peoples. They would intermarry. uh, They would not only bring in uh, new ethnicities, but they would also bring in new religions. And what would happen would be what we call syncretism, where a whole bunch of merging of religions and cultures and values and practices uh, would now merge together, and they became a new people called the Samaritan people. In fact, their religious distinctions were significant. One of the pieces that remained is that just like the Jews in the south, the Samaritans would continue to study and trust in the Torah, the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They did make some changes there, but they rejected all the rest of the books of the Old Testament. They rejected the prophets. They rejected the history teachings, the wisdom literature, and the Psalms. Why? Because those are the books that mentioned Jerusalem as the holy city. But the people in the north did not live near Jerusalem. They had their own capital city, where in 400 B.C. they'd even build their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which is right there next to Samaria, the capital. They had their own religion. They had their own temple. They had their own sacrificial system, their own laws and rules, their own priesthood. 
they effectively created a new religion in these peoples. Religiously, they were worse than the Gentiles. They were a cult of Judaism. In fact, in the great uh, zealous purges of the days of the Hasmoneans, uh, John Hyrcanus was a Jew who, during these days before Jesus came in, in uh, around 150 BC, sacked and burned that temple on Mount Gerizim. This was fresh wounds for the people in Jesus' day. There are still Samaritans that live to our day now. They count in the hundreds, maybe a few thousand. They live near and on Mount Gerizim, and they even celebrate Passover a month later than the Jews, just to be different, follow a different calendar. They sacrifice lambs, blood sacrifices in a site of their old temple to this very day, waiting for their Messiah, a different Messiah. In Jesus' day, there was great hostility between these Samaritans and those who were Jewish. And he's about to have an encounter that is by no means a chance encounter. Verses 5 through 6. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So he's at this city called Sychar. We don't know exactly where that is. We know it's in this region of Samaria near Mount Gerizim. But we do know exactly the location of the well. Scholars are in almost complete agreement, whether they're Samaritan, Israeli, Muslim, or Christian, on the exact site of this well because it exists to this day. In fact, if you're going to, go to take a tour uh, to this part of uh, Israel today, uh, you would get a chance to drink water from that well. It's in the basement of a church. You can still access it now. The water is still 100 feet deep. You pull it up with a chain and share a cup with millions of other tourists who come there year by year. By Jesus' day, it had already been standing for 2,000 years, only a few hundred yards away from the tomb of Joseph, the son of the patriarch. And why is it that Jesus sits down here at this well? Well, the text tells us Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Wearied as he was. I don't want to miss this because of the significance here. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, I, I certainly hope you know that Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. He was not just a superhero like Clark Kent pretending to be a normal person who couldn't stub his toe but pretended to bleed, pretended to suffer, pretended to be winded after a long hike. No, Jesus was actually fully human. And so he could weary he embraced a human nature. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the creator of the universe, did not forsake an ounce of his divinity, but embraced full humanity with all of its limitations and weaknesses. And so Jesus genuinely was tired. And so he sits in this well to take a rest, perhaps to have a drink. Text continues in 7 through 9. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So here's Jesus. He's sitting there at this well. He's taking a rest. 
would not be uncommon for the rabbi to have those who are following him go get the food. They're probably carrying the supplies with them. And so he's sitting there and he asked this woman for a drink. The text here said that it was the sixth hour. Most scholars agree that's noon. It's counted from dawn. I think that that's the correct, uh, correct idea. It's taking place then, which means it's the heat of the day which means that there's nobody else around but Jesus and this woman. And that's actually a significant point. He's not preaching to a crowd of people. It's him and this woman having a private interaction, and no one else is present. That's why when the disciples return later in this passage, they're surprised. He's alone there with this woman. He's sitting in a well. A woman shows up, and Jesus speaks first. Give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see, what Jesus might say here seems like an entirely normal thing. Hey, can you help me get a drink? He doesn't have a bucket. He doesn't have a rope. He doesn't have any way to draw the water. Again, presumably the disciples had that stuff with them. But there was something about the request the woman immediately recognized was not ordinary, inappropriate, a breach of protocol. And what is it? You, a Jew, ask for me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? Jews are to have no dealings with Samaritans. And essentially what this is meaning is that they had ceremonial laws about cleanness. (coughs) Cleanliness laws. The Jews could not eat with or drink with Gentiles, and certainly not with heretical Samaritans. They were far worse than the average Gentile. They had kosher laws. They couldn't share drinking vessels or eating vessels. And it seems she knows this because she doesn't just say, why are you talking to me? She says, why are you asking me for a drink? Do you not know I'm a Samaritan? You might remember the story of the Good Samaritan. In fact, when I say that name, Samaritan, that might come to mind. That's a common parable. But one of the most significant points of that parable, as Jesus spoke it, is he was answering the question, who's my neighbor? That's the question that was being asked when he shares the parable of the Jewish man who was beaten by some robbers and left for dead. And two religious Jews walked by, and both of them walked the other way. They didn't help him, but the third helped him. Who was the third? The Samaritan, a good Samaritan. That was one of the reasons it was so significant in that parable. Because this was, a, this was, this was enemies, social enemies. And that Samaritan was willing to help the Jew because he was his neighbor. It was someone in need. There was a cultural divide. A significant social chasm between Jesus and this woman, but Jesus utterly disregards that chasm and effortlessly steps across it as though it were nothing more than a crack in a sidewalk. He breaks the silence first and speaks to her, and she's shocked. And so she asks, why are you talking to me? Asking me for a drink. And his answer is in verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If you knew the gift of God. In chapter 3, I spent a whole week on verse 16. On God being the great giver that gives the greatest gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 
It keeps showing up here again later in chapter 3 and here now again in chapter 10. If you knew the gift, the gift of God, Jesus has been granted. He's been given by the Father to this lost world. Here he is, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the Savior of the world. Why are you talking to me? If you even knew, if you knew who I was. And what a charitable thing for Jesus to say. Because he knows she doesn't know who he is. If you knew, this exchange would have gone way different. She will know by the end. But he tells her right here off the bat, if you knew, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Not only was Jesus willing to speak to this woman, not only was he willing to stoop, not only was he willing to breach those societal protocols, but here he is now offering something to her. He was fully prepared to give this woman everything she needed. One commentator I read on this passage said it this way. I loved loved this line. J.C. Ryle writes, The Lord Jesus is far more ready to hear than we are to pray, and far more ready to give favors than we are to ask them. We should ask, we should pray, we should go to him. And here he is gently but firmly saying that to him. If, if you had just asked, I would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now, her confusion is totally understandable, especially if you think about the way that other people respond to Jesus in John. She assumes he's talking about literal water, and why shouldn't she? He's sitting by a well. He asks for a drink of water. He replies with this cryptic, I would give you living water. Um, I'm confused. How, how can you draw what You have nothing to draw it with. Again, again, I don't think he has the supplies to do that. She knows it. Where do you get that living water? To add to the frustrations for her, perhaps, the term living water might seem kind of odd to us. It just means flowing water or running water. It's to distinguish that between stagnant water, like a puddle or a pond, stagnant water. You tell your kids, don't drink out of that. But running water, a a, a babbling brook, a stream, a spring, like this, this well was fed by a spring. So it was full of living water. The Jews would have known this. They would have only baptized people in their mikvahs, in their, 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 uh, their baptismals that were built under homes where water, living water, rushed through. This was a part of culture back then. So him to say this made it actually harder for her to understand. She's like, yeah, where, where are you getting this living water? I'm the one who has access to this well, not you. And not only this, but she points to the cultural value of that particular well. So she has this misunderstanding, which is really obvious. This is the kind of misunderstanding, the same category as many people who come before her, even in this book. I mean, do you remember when the, uh, the Pharisees back in chapter 2 heard Jesus say, tear down this temple, 
and I will rebuild it again in three days. You remember what their, their concern was? How can you tear down? That took us years to build. That took us decades. How are you going to tear down that temple and rebuild it, right? They took him very literally. And we're told in chapter 2, he was speaking not of the physical temple, but the temple of his body. Again in chapter 3, super wise, learned Nicodemus, this religious teacher and leader. Jesus says, you want to see the kingdom of God? You must be born again. Born again? How does a man climb back into his mother's womb a second time, right? They take him literally. John chapter 6, they're going to do this all throughout John. He tells them they need to eat of his body, drink of his blood. Whoa, we're supposed to cut you up and eat you like cannibals? People continually do this with Jesus, and he doesn't seem to care. And so her confusion is very understandable. She even doubles down on the cultural value. She goes, listen, okay, hold on. Do you know the well you're sitting by? Jacob, our father, because the Samaritans trace their line still all the way back to Jacob. He's in, he's in the Pentateuch. He's in the first five books. We, we, do, you know, do you know this well? Do you know the maybe millions of people that have drunk from this well? Millions of livestock over 2,000 years that have drunk from this well? You think you have better than this? What, are you greater than Jacob who procured this well for us that you're going to magically show me better water than I have access to already? You get it? That's her concern. How could this Jew offer better than that? So she challenges if Jesus is better or greater than our father Jacob. Knowing what we know and what she has yet to learn, it's humorous, isn't it? She's asking, are you greater than Jacob? He doesn't answer that question directly. But we look at it and we go, yes, yes, you have no idea who you're talking about here, who you're interacting with. Yes, he's greater than Jacob. Jacob gave us water that has staved off the thirst for maybe millions for thousands of years. Jesus will do you better. And that's exactly what he does next. He tells her this, verse 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up, leaping up to eternal life. Jesus' response to her challenge is kind but clear. He is not talking about physical water. He's talking about a spiritual water. He says the water that Jacob gave to his children and his livestock, generations of people have had this water, but all of them have had to come back again and again and again, just like she has had to day after day after day, return back to the well. Because as impressive as that well was, it could only stave off thirst for a limited time. But Jesus could offer water that would satisfy a thirsty soul forever. Now it becomes crystal clear that he's using water as a metaphor for spiritual life. And for the record, that's not original to this particular passage in John. You look at the Bible, and you get two-thirds, maybe three-quarters of the way through the entirety of the Bible before you get here. This is not the first time that water has been referred to in such a spiritual way. In fact, many of the times in the Old Testament that water is referred to in the spiritual way are in the parts of the Bible the Samaritans ripped out and wouldn't read. 
So she would not have been familiar with places like Isaiah, places like Jeremiah, places where the significance of water are drawn out quite a bit. Let me show you a couple of those places. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3 says, With joy, talking about the end, a final restoration of the people of God coming together. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. She didn't have that Bible. Jeremiah 2, verse 13. This is an indictment on God's people for rejecting him. God says this. With joy. Uh, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. See? And hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Again, there it's very clear that what he's saying is that there are people by their own efforts trying to satisfy the thirsty soul, and those cisterns can hold no water. And they have rejected, the people here have rejected God who is himself the fountain of living waters. This woman would not have had access to those scriptures. She would not have believed in them. Jesus is using a metaphor that is rich throughout the Bible from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the New. We thirst for more than what the material world can offer. This thirst is in every one of us. We long for something more ultimately something eternal. Solomon writes this in Ecclesiastes 3, 11. He, God, has put eternity into man's heart. It's a longing. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. A desire for something that cannot and will not be satisfied. Something bigger than yourself. We are designed with a longing. It's built into us. It's in our very framework. It's an itch we cannot scratch. It is a thirst that cannot be quenched by anything in this temporal world. This life and all the things in it will never satisfy the ache in the human soul. Desires of the flesh can never really satisfy. In fact, trying to stave off that spiritual thirst with things of the earth, temporal things, is like trying to stave off thirst by munching on handfuls of salt. It will only make you thirsty for more. This is why, and we said this kind of thing many times here, no matter what corner of the planet you will find in which a tribe that has been cut off from the civilized world for thousands of years is discovered, you will find they worship some kind of deity. They cry out for some eternity. They have some hope for something after they die and an expectation of something that came before they lived. Because every single image bearer of God knows there's something more. This is why atheists gather together in their churches to try to save the earth, to try to reach the stars, because they know life cannot be about just live and die like a breath. They want to live for something more than the pleasures of today. We all know it. You don't have to prove this to people. Jesus doesn't have to prove this to the woman. She knows of the insatiable thirst in her own heart. In fact, this woman's life was evidence of that. We're going to get to the text next week, but she was a serial bride. She had five husbands and now living with a sixth who she's not yet married to. 
Her life was actually a perfect example of how someone might try to fill an empty void in their heart with earthly things. And is that not a common one for women especially? That void must be filled with love and the love of a man. We all must be guarded from that desire and the, the thought that it will fill that void. This is at the root of so many of our quarrels. James tells us this in the New Testament. Why do you quarrel? What's this bickering and arguing going on? Because you want and cannot have. There's, there's, a, there's an ache in your soul, and you're trying to fill it with stuff, and people will never be able to do it. And they will fail you time and time and time again. And in them failing you, you will fail them. It's just going to keep getting worse. She sought love from men to satisfy an ache in her soul that she most certainly had over and over again, but it clearly did not work. It was not sufficient. Now, she finally meets a man who didn't want anything from her, but everything for her. The only man who could truly satisfy that thirst in her soul. And he's freely ready to give it to her. He knew her. He made this trip, I believe, for this reason. I didn't spend the time on it. I'll just quickly point to it because I think it's an awesome word. There are books written on one word that shows up here earlier that I kind of went through quickly back when Jesus begins his trip uh, this direction. It says of Jesus here, um, verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. He must. It was necessary that he passed there. That might not seem like a big deal, uh, but many theologians, many scholars have seen there was a need for Jesus to go there. There were plenty of ways he could have gone. I already told you the more common ones. I believe that the need was more than just he wanted to get to Galilee fast. I think he wanted to go meet this woman. Perfect son of God set a plan. And here he is speaking with her. All those men, they didn't know her. They didn't know her needs. They didn't really understand. They didn't want to fulfill anything that they could offer for her. She was lonely and empty, and Jesus was prepared to fill her soul. He alone could quench that thirst. That's as far as we're going to get in the text today. Next week, we'll pick up right here. We've left off. We've stopped through verse 14. We're going to pick up in verse 15, and I'll probably go back and just revisit a few of the verses before. Make sure we didn't miss anything there. But I want to offer four points of application in closing. First, Jesus disregards social and cultural taboos. He just disregards them. From a purely human or cultural perspective, this conversation should never have happened. Not only was she a Samaritan, as we've already walked through the stigma there, she was a woman. There was an added bridge to cross. And as we learn later in the text, she had a reputation for being sexually immoral. In fact, this is likely why she shows up in the middle of the day to avoid the stares and glares from the other women in the community. It's very likely. Remember when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus one chapter before? Nicodemus was a man of great renown, to be sure. Jesus could have gotten a lot of points Pats on the back for being seen interacting with such a high and mighty religious leader, such a trusty, trusted voice amongst the Jewish people. 
would want to have a, the little Instagram photo and the, the, the selfie and the, the, the way to show it. Hey, look, look, Nicodemus and I are going to chat for a little bit. Just want you all to know I am talking with Nicodemus, the famous. How did he speak with Nicodemus? In the dark of the night. With no one else there. Private conversation that would earn him no social points. But here he speaks of this woman with low reputation in broad daylight, as it were, without concern of how scandalous it might appear to others. And it does appear that way. Later, the disciples are going to show back up and go, uh, what's going on here? You know she's a Samaritan? What are you doing? They're wanting to ask it, but they don't because they know this is, this is weird. Jesus does not care about what others thought about him. He did not show any concern whatsoever for his social credit score. He was known to dine with sinners, to befriend tax collectors, to deal compassionately with the social pariahs and the moral outcasts of his day. And he did so repeatedly, without apology. I read one one writer on this idea, G. Campbell Morgan, wrote this, and I thought this was just such a I'm inclined to agree with what he says in here. Listen to what he says. Instead of taking the road of the Judean, he chose the road they did not take as a protest against their reason for not taking it and a protest against their prejudice and pride and an indication of the inclusiveness of his messiahship. I'm inclined to agree with that. Question we as Christians must ask, are we willing to cross lines like this even if it costs us socially? We all hope to give the answer yes. We all hope to, of course, I want to be the one who would cross over cultural barriers and not care if someone is going to think less of me for interacting with other people. Throughout Christian history, we have many shining examples of Christians doing wonderful job of this, crossing cultural boundaries, totally indifferent to societal stigmas, caring for lepers, the homeless, refugees, displaced peoples, pagans of every stripe, the outcasts in every society under heaven, even showing compassion on enemies, as Jesus did. I once met a missionary to Thailand. He had a very unique and specific kind of missionary. You might know that Thailand is, a, is, is in Southeast Asia, one of the uh, hubs of a lot of the uh, sexual exploitation of young women and even little girls. It's a really awful, awful sin that goes through there. And there's a lot of press being given to that awful wickedness this day, as, as there should be. In fact, if you're anything like me, as you've heard of some of the stories of just some of the atrocious lives that some people have had to live in and the sex slave trade, uh, it's just so brutal and it makes you angry. Your flesh rises up and just gets so filled with fury and maybe even sometimes the spirit in us, the righteous anger, this is wrong, it shouldn't happen, rises up in our hearts, right? Christians have and should continue to be the tip of the spear on dealing with those awful atrocities. But I met this one particular brother who had a ministry to Thailand. He went with a bunch of other men, and he'd bring them on groups out there, train and prepare them, and they'd stand just outside of the red light district in, in, in the big cities of Thailand, where men traveled all over the world to come for business trips, and then at night would go in for their pleasures into the red light district, and these brothers in Christ would stand there to share the gospel with the abusers and the victimizers, and the destroyers of life. Because everybody needs the gospel. 
In this kingdom building age, I do not believe that there is one people group overlooked by Christ being sought for redemption. That's why, that's why Revelation tells us that it'll be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who will be praising his perfect name in heaven forever. Every. I, I take that very literally. Every. There will not be one language in this age spoken that will not be singing praises to Jesus Christ in eternity someday. Many times Christians have done well at this, disregarding the social and cultural taboos. And we ought to continue to do that, but there have been many failures in our Christian history to this effect as well. We still fail today. It's in our human nature, and it does no one any good to pretend that's not the case. Christians have been racist. Christians have been nationalist. Christians have thought very wrongly about other peoples. This has definitely happened. Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, because we as sinners are still being worked on by Christ until the day we are finally perfected in heaven and not before. First point, Jesus disregards social and cultural taboos as should we. Second point, Jesus meets us at our well. Where was the place you met Jesus? Where was your well? I've shared before my testimony here that Christ changed the trajectory of my life in eternity. About 20 years ago, when I was in my apartment in downtown Chicago at dawn, waking up after a long night, and nothing has been the same for me ever since then. Do you remember that time for yourself? I know people that happened in a car. I have a brother who, who pulled his car over on the side of the road hearing something on a radio broadcast. But the Holy Spirit entered into his soul, changed and converted his heart. And by the time the tears were gone, enough out of his eyes that he could get back on the road, he was now redeemed. And a Toyota Corolla. For you, late night, taking a walk under the stars, maybe at a kitchen table, maybe at a coffee table, maybe somewhere alone in the woods, maybe at work. Jesus meets us where we are during our most mundane and ordinary tasks. He's not waiting on the top of the mountain for people to work their way through a whole host of obstacles and achieve, and only after arriving, cleaned and prettied up, finally they've been made willing and able to make it to the top of that holiness mountain and are worthy of coming to him. Jesus comes to where we are. Have you ever been in the position of needing to have a real heart-to-heart conversation with something about, someone about something important? I don't know how well this is going to go. I want to make sure that I'm doing it at the right time. A spouse, coworker, maybe your boss, you got to deal with something. <sighs> okay, he came into work with a bad mood. I'll wait till tomorrow. Might go over a little smoother, right? We anticipate a moment that might make more sense. Why? Because we don't have the power to prepare a person's heart for what we might need to say. And so we passively must try to discern when would be the best time to do that. And have you ever chosen the wrong time to approach somebody? Lord knows I have. You and I can never judge for certain when that time will be, but Jesus' timing is perfect. Because he works on the heart. We have no way of knowing how ready this woman might have appeared to be. The morning she was preparing to come and meet Jesus... But he met her there anyway. It was exactly the right time. I think we'll see her in heaven. 
She becomes an evangelist. At the end of this chapter, she goes proclaiming the truth that she wrote, Jesus, this man I, who told me everything I ever knew. <laughs> He's one of the first evangelists in the, in the Bible. And many people have come to saving faith in Christ because of what she says. I suspect we'll see that sister someday. We are commanded to go, and Jesus himself takes that first step. He meets us at our well. Third point, Jesus begins the conversation. He speaks first. He didn't just sit there and wait for her to say something. Okay, now she's ready. No. Romans 3, 10 through 11 says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. We've made a, a lot about that language in our modern evangelical vernacular. We, we say things like, uh, we talk about people as seekers. Th th those who are not yet believers, and we're praying that we'll become that way, seekers, those who are looking for Christ. But the truth is, theologically speaking, no one apart from his work, seeks for God. Thomas Aquinas once spoke to this point because people said, well, I, we see some level of seeking. It does seem people are looking for something to fill that void, as we were talking about. And Aquinas explains, he goes, yes, that's true. People do seek that. They are seeking something to fill the void. And sometimes if they observe in religious people, if they observe in Christians, a joy, they go, I want that joy. I want that benefit. I want that forgiveness. I want those benefits that come with being Christian. And so they seek the benefits apart from seeking Christ. And that's why it sometimes to our eyes appears that people are seeking Christ before saving faith. But that does not mean they're seeking God. In fact, the Bible continually tells us things like this in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He's the ultimate seeker. John 4, I read it, I read it already. This was later in this text. It says this about God in verse 23. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is the ultimate seeker. Talk about, talk about aspiring to be a seeker-sensitive church, right? We should be a seeker-sensitive church. Lord, let us be sensitive to what you want and desire and command. Jesus is the ultimate seeker. And here's why that's such amazing, extraordinary news. Because this means that the lost person need not rely on their ability nor on their desire to seek God or even on the evangelistic zeal of the Christians in their vicinity. Their salvation depends solely on the work of the supreme seeker who goes to the well, who speaks first across all cultural and social taboos. So brothers and sisters, share the gospel, do so indiscriminately, but remember to pray that Jesus would go with you to reach others because if he does not go with you, you have nothing to offer that person. Last point, Jesus gives himself to whomever asks. He gives himself to whomever asks. Did you hear that language he said there? If you knew the gift of God and who it, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you'd have gone home, cleaned up your sinful life, put on fresh clothes, repented of all of your issues, told everybody of your wrongs, made right, and then come back and I would have given you a drink. Nope. If you knew who you were talking to, you would have asked, and he would have given it to you. 
If you're not a believer today, this is what you need to do. You need to ask Christ for this living water. You need to ask for your sins to be forgiven. This perfect Christ goes to a cross and dies a sinner's death. He's buried and raises again because death cannot hold him. And all you need to access that gospel truth, the exchange of his death for yours, the eternal life he earned for your, your, your death that you've earned by your sins. How do you get that? Ask. You just ask. There's no list of works that you have, to, you have to work to go accomplish, that if only you work enough, if you finally have done all the right things, cleaned yourself up enough, then you may make yourself worthy. No, just ask. All this woman needed to do Matthew 7, 7 through 8 says it this way. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Praise God for that glorious gospel. Let's pray. Father, we're so undeserving of the good and perfect gift of your Son. And yet, passage after passage, paragraph after paragraph, we read through John of the glorious grace that you have bestowed upon us for no goodness in us, no earning or deserving of righteousness, of forgiveness of sins, of the sins being cast as far as the east is from the west. But Lord, you offer it anyway as a good giver, the great gift of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for demonstrating that perfect love for lost people in Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. Lord, we know many people in our lives today who are women at the well. Perhaps we would say that about ourselves. And we're so grateful that your perfect son went to this lost woman, initiated a conversation with her, freely offered the water of eternal life, that she too may have it as undeserving as she is and as we are. Thank you, Lord, for this truth. Let us never forget it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.